0: This episode of The How of Car Washing is sponsored by Diamond Shine. Diamond Shine is the premier car wash chemical manufacturer dedicated to maximizing the profitability and performance of car washes nationwide. Visit DiamondShine.com today to learn from the industry experts. Welcome to The How of Car Washing the podcast that helps the car wash owner, operator, and manager address the challenges and opportunities associated with building and running automated car washes in today's fast-paced environment. And now, here are your hosts, David Begin and Henry Lopez. Okay,
1: my guest today is Ronald Chernak, who's the founder of the FBB Group here in Colorado Springs in Denver. To give a little background on Ron, Ron practiced law before he uh, founded FBB Group in uh, Chicago for a 175-member law firm. Uh, He's got a CPA certificate uh, from Illinois and is currently a licensed Colorado real estate broker and is licensed also to practice law in Colorado, so he's an attorney as well. He's got a FINRA Series 79 securities license, and Ron is also a certified business intermediary, a CBI, and a merger and acquisitions master intermediary, which is an m MI designation, and it's the highest level of accreditation in the industry. Uh, Ron's got extensive experience in contract and lease negotiations, financial planning, and financing, and he's a very active member in the community here in Colorado Springs. Uh, he was the former chairman of the board of the Colorado Springs Chamber of Commerce, the Southern Colorado Economic Forum. He was a founding sponsor for them and also a Rotary Club member. Um, Ron has also served as chairman and director of the Uh, For the board of numerous business brokers committees and organizations, such as the International Business Brokers Association, IBBA, he was the chairman of that. It's a premier industry trade association, and he's been chairman of the M&A Source, the country's largest association of middle market intermediaries. So we've got a great guest today, and Ron, I appreciate you taking time to uh, visit
2: with us. Well, David, it's good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah, so our our audience is really small business owners, so people that own small businesses, people that own car washes, and, um, you know, a lot of people who start businesses, they don't really think about the end game. They don't think about selling their business. They're eventually going to want to do something with that business, either pass it down to their family or sell it to different individuals, but... uh, why do you think that is? Why why, why, do you, why do you think people don't think about that end game? Is it because they don't want to think about that time, or it's just too difficult to think about, or uh, it, it would make sense, it seems like, to kind of think about your business from the beginning of how, what's your overall exit strategy going to be?
2: Yep. And I would break that down <coughs> into two categories and say there are a small group of people that get into the business, get into business, that is... And they do have an exit plan. Now, there are few and far between, but generally the more professionals, and for example, our firm deals with a number of private equity groups. And they generally look at acquiring the business, and they clearly know what the end game is and what the plan is. But I would say the majority of individuals who start the business get focused on the concept and i have likened the experience of deciding that you're going into business and buy a business you know to falling in love it it kind of encapsulates you you know with it so people get focused how am i going to finance it where am i going to be how do i find people how do i expand my customer base and that focus is now it's in front of them and they may need to be doing business plans to obtain financing But after a period of time, after they settle in, the business matures, then they should start be thinking about how to exit that business.
1: Okay, because everybody is eventually going to exit one way or another. Yep, Yep.
2: vertical or horizontal. (laughs)
1: Okay, there you go. You know,
2: As as a matter of fact, a couple (laughs) things we do within my firm after we sell a business, we let the dust settle a bit, and then we visit with the new owner of the business, and we talk to them about developing an exit plan. And you're absolutely right, some plan on transferring it to the kids, but the vast majority of the businesses don't get transferred okay. down to the the kids. And there is a timeline, you know, from the standpoint of that exit process that we can get into if you want and we have time. But bottom line, it's close to five years five if you're years. going to do it right.
1: So yeah. it's about a five-year plan. Yep. Okay, okay. So if you were take take 100 small businesses, what percentage of them just go out of business, what percentage of them get sold, and what percentage do you think get passed passed on to family members?
2: You know, I don't have the national statistics for that, and there are a lot of small businesses that are pretty much one-man band. You know, they may operate out of their, their home, and of course, those businesses, if they turn off the lights, you know, they, they don't get on a lot of radar screens. But I think most businesses where you have a minimum size, I'm going to say five or more employees, which is a somewhat arbitrary number, a lot of those businesses do have value. And I think most of the entrepreneurs that own those businesses have a genuine concern about employees. You know, what's going to happen to those employees that help make this business what it is? Because many of those employees still need to have income, and feed their families.
1: Right, right, right. So, yeah, having that overall exit strategy, I think, is, is going to be very, very important. So when people sell a business, they're going to sell it for a certain price. Um, hmm. What are some methods that people use to, to figure out how to, how to evaluate a business, figure out what it's worth in the market?
2: Yep. You know, there's dozens of formulas, you know, out there as far as how to value the business. In today's world, you can, you know, Google, you know, what's my business worth and get a lot of information off the Internet. Uh, I will tell you, within our firm, we have three primary considerations that we look at. And of course, there's a lot of detail as you drill down into each of these. But we, we start out with, what is the fair market value of the tangible assets being sold? So there's furniture, fixtures, and equipment. And it's not what you paid for, it; it's what it's worth today. That's what it's worth. Yeah. You know, so for example, we recently sold a business and I think there were 47 vehicles included as part of the assets. It's not what the new vehicle costs, it's what that van, the service van that's out there, uh, is worth today, maybe four or five years old, 60,000 miles, whatever. That's obviously not a new vehicle. So you look at fair market value of tangible assets. Uh, You also look at what's the probable structure. Will there be working capital, such as inventory and receivables? include in the transaction. So you, you put a value, you know, on that. It's not necessarily what you're carrying the inventory on the books. It's is that all marketable inventory? And what is that fair market value, you know, cost within there? So the tangible value of the assets being transferred is one component. The second and the real driver of value for most businesses is the income stream that the business generates and we, we know there are, are different structures for holding a business. So for example, it could be a sole proprietorship for a small business. More likely than not, it's a S corporation or an LLC, and some businesses are structured as a C corp. So you have to look at the, the various structures and how compensation is pulled out of the business by the ownership group. So you know we will look at not only the net profit but we'll look to see if there might be excess salaries and their excess benefits you know the classic country club you know membership Uh, we've sold businesses that have airplanes you know in them Uh, whether or not the airplane is appropriately used for the the business there are those factors you you get into as well but cash flow is a real driver and then third thing we look at is demand and we drill down into demand in a number of areas so first of all right now we are in the midst of a very strong business transfer market the M&A market is near historic highs with it so it's a strong market globally nationally, and in Colorado we're particularly blessed because we're very high on the national radar screen uh, because of growth, uh, demographics of a younger population, uh, attractive climate, uh, relatively low cost of doing business because we're mostly a non-union environment here. So the demand for businesses in Colorado is higher than many other parts of the country then not only do we look at the geographic demand, we look at what is the demand within the industry. Uh, I've been involved in this industry now over 34 years. Historically, I see manufacturing as one of the areas of strongest demand out there. And in fact, the manufacturing base is changing in this country, of course. A lot of jobs, as we've heard from our president-elect, have been transferred offshore uh, because of the cost, lower costs of doing business. So that makes those manufacturing businesses that are still in the U.S. more attractive. It's a supply and demand factor okay. that comes into play. Technology is increasing. Retail is changing. You know, for example, we have the big boxes out there. Uh, we also have Amazon and the e-commerce Side of the industry, so things have been followed.
1: quite a, quite a bit of difference. But it it gets to so when people talk in our industry as far as sales price, they're always talking a multiple of earnings. Mm-hmm. That's a general sense, and then yep. when you start factoring these other things in, you'll you'll get maybe uh, uh, they'll use maybe uh, say five times earnings is mm-hmm. what they're doing. so they're taking five years worth of earnings and they're saying that might be the sale price or seven times earnings. So you might take a base in terms of what that industry might traditionally offer in terms of earnings, and you might go north of that or south of that, depending on the environment, the, the demand, uh, how well the business has been run, you know, whether there's lots of stuff in there that shouldn't be in there, There's those type of things, I think.
2: Yeah, that, that comes into play. I would also say trends are important. Uh, if you have a business that is trending upward and has five years, let's say, of increasing earnings, that business will sell for historically more than a business that has five years of declining earnings. So okay. that comes into play. Also, in our world, size matters. And by that, I mean you can have a business in the same industry, but a business that makes 300000 of adjusted earnings... Uh, will sell for a lower multiple than a business that has three million dollars okay those adjusted earnings.
1: Okay. So the the more earnings the more multi, the higher multiples yes. you probably would get on that. So um so you know you've got some great background both being an attorney, being a CPA, uh you know, having some uh security licenses and I'm sure when a guy like me might come in when I turn 65, say I want to retire to Hawaii I say, I want to sell my business, and I bring you my financials. Mm-hmm. That that can be either a great story or a horror story, I would imagine. So what are some of the typical mistakes or problems that you see when people bring you their financials that small business owners who are typically not audited, we're typically not going to get our books audited. Right. Uh, you know, I, I read your newsletters every quarter, believe it or not, and you preach one thing I want you to talk about a little later on i think you, you you over and over use the first term do not use your business as a personal checkbook. Absolutely. And that has stuck with me more and more so but what are some of the pitfalls that you see when you look at these financials when they come in and you're you know you're taking more aspirin than you typically would because you know this is going to be a tough sell.
2: Yeah. And i i will you you, you mentioned you you're turning 65, want to go to Hawaii? There you go. Uh, just truly coincidentally, we sold a business with those circumstances. Okay. So I'm not going to mention the, the name and the bis- okay. of the business, but probably uh, four years ago or so, uh, I was introduced by an entrepreneur who had a distribution business that he was considering selling and we had the discussion about timeline and we typically advise business owners to get involved in the consideration of the sale process three to five years before you want to exit your your business and the light bulb went on for this gentleman very smart and hard-working but we visited initially he made some changes to his business and then last year he came to us and said Ron I want to retire we're moving to Hawaii and we want to build our dream home okay we closed on that transaction on December 30th and made it effective January 1st for tax purposes okay and closing out the year but this is a case where the gentleman was able to sell for an all cash price for the the business He had his ducks in a row. He had increasing earnings. He had good books that stood the scrutiny of not only the buyer, but the buyer's accountant uh, during the process. We did wind up having a small amount essentially put into an escrow type arrangement. Uh, And as far as I know, once he completes his transition shortly, he's going to Hawaii and finish the dream home and retire in paradise.
1: Yeah. So what did you recommend he do for those three to five years to make his business attractive for sale?
2: Well, I I think there are a couple things to to look at. And we'll go back to your commentary about not running your business like your personal checkbook. And I will tell you, I have seen a lot of things, uh, including mortgage payments and utility payments being run through the business. And when I'm talking about mortgage payments and utility payments, I'm talking about personal residential as opposed to, of of course, utilities for the the business. Right. Buyers are going to see that. Lenders are going to see that. A lot of businesses are sold with SBA guaranteed loans. Uh, So now you have a government loan product and you're essentially cheating the IRS. Okay. Uh, that doesn't compute well when it comes time to try to bring things through the lending industry. So it's you know, cleaning up those personal expenses. Things like uh, cell phones for your kids. You know, it's easy to bury those in a business, but you don't want right. to, to do that. Separate personal from personal. Okay. Nobody likes to pay taxes. I don't like to pay taxes, but if your business shows a profit it's going to sell for more money than a business that doesn't. That's right. And you if know, you're spending $100
1: profit. on a cell phone bill, what does that cost you in the sale, you know, long term?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll go through some math. And I had a discussion like this earlier this week, as a matter of fact, with an existing client that's closing out the year. And he had a strong year. And to a certain extent, there is some flexibility with business owners as far as recognition of income. You know, if you're involved in a project, is that project 50% completed or is it 40% completed? Uh, Sometimes that's an estimate. But be that as it may, there may be some options relative to the recognition of income. So here's kind of the way that I explained it to this particular client if you report that hundred thousand dollars of income in calendar year 2016 you're going to pay taxes on it now this business makes uh, in about a million dollars a year a uh, successful business the owner is also looking to to retire so he's probably in a higher personal tax bracket and the incremental tax rate on this is going to be about 40 percent on the federal side 39.6 percent or so, and then the 4.63% Colorado. So round numbers, he's at 45%. So he's paying $45,000 on taxes. When I sell a business, and if again, there's more than just the simple multiple, but most businesses sell in a three to five time multiple range. Uh, If there's more equipment or there may be real estate involved or it is a larger business or a higher demand business, you can get into higher multiples and we've sold businesses as high as 11, you know, from a multiple, but those are outliers. So we take this $100,000 and we ascribe a multiple to it. And the multiple on this business is probably about four. So now I can get this business owner close to four hundred thousand dollars more for the the business. Uh, he's going to pay taxes on that additional money, but those taxes are going to be long-term capital gains rates, twenty uh, percent. Then again, approximately five percent for the state, and then there's the uh, Affordable Care Act surcharge for another three. So round that up, so now you're at 30%. So here it is, we have the 400,000 additional gain. He pays $120,000 of tax on that. That leaves us $280,000 of additional net sales price he gets as a result of paying that 45,000. So you take the 45,000 off the 280 he essentially still brought home about $235,000 more after tax dollars by reporting that. Okay. I think that math is fairly compelling.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. And that's that's that long-term view versus a short-term view of, well... That's right. I, yeah.
2: And most of the time, businesses are not valued just on one year. So you have to start that process of recognizing the income at least two three years in advance to establish that trend Uh, oftentimes buyers will average the last three years of earnings banks certainly are going to look at the last two years of earnings in order to determine how much money they're going to loan you know on that business so you can't just wave that magic wand and do it overnight you need to plan ahead you need to recognize the, the income so it's not only the recognition of the income That we're we're talking about. It's also the formatting of the income. We are working with a client right now that has three businesses. uh, And the three businesses don't all have the same fiscal year end. And it can be very confusing, particularly if these businesses do business with each other and you have intercompany transactions. So you need to get all that sorted out and cleaned up with account so a buyer and a lender can see without going through a lot of uh, accounting gymnastics of the earnings and expenses you know of that business we have a saying and you talked about reading our newsletter which we've been publishing now for every month for the last three plus years but we have a saying that good numbers sell businesses faster for more money So it's that formatting that comes into play. And then there's also who is preparing those financial records. If I'm trying to sell you my business, you know, obviously it's in my best interest to show as much in the way of income to get a higher value for it. Uh, Can you really trust me, you know, from that standpoint? My numbers may be accurate to the penny, but you and your lender are going to feel more comfortable if we had a third-party accounting firm to verify and authenticate the validity of those numbers. Okay.
1: Okay. So going out and getting a, for lack of a better word, an audit?
2: Well, you know, there are different levels of of accounting. So I I would say the, the first recommendation for most businesses would be to use a CPA as opposed to a public accountant. Uh, There's just more credibility that that you have with a CPA. And then there are three levels of accounting uh, statements that you can get from that accounting firm. Most businesses wind up using compiled statements, which basically means the accountant will look at the financial statements. Uh, If there is something that comes to the accountant's attention, they will change that. Uh, in order to sign off on it but by and large they don't spend a huge amount of scrutiny. The next level up is reviewed financial statements and many times businesses that have large loans or deal with the contracting process where they may need bonds, they are compelled to have at least reviewed statements and that means the accountant has to perform more review and those records, and there's a greater level of detail. Because the accounting firm has to spend more time to sign off on those financial statements, reviewed statements cost more. And then you have the highest level, which is the audit. Uh, Audits are expensive, and the reason audits are expensive is because it takes even more time for the accounting firm to essentially sign off on the audit level of financial statements, but there's also more exposure and liability to the accounting firm. So if you have a large enough business, and we oftentimes recommend to clients that they get audited financial statements because we know they will get more money for the business just because they have that audit behind them. What's it do? The audit reduces the risk to the buyer and to the lender. So therefore, it's worth more to, to a buyer, and they will pay more for the business.
1: Okay, okay. So as you see a set of books, and you say this looks like a relatively sloppy set of books, you can't mm-hmm. really identify where the income is coming. Uh, there's a lot of expenses in there that there are co-mingled between the business and the personal mm-hmm. uh, personal expenses it just it decreases the confidence level in the buyer that what they're buying is actually what they're buying.
2: Yep. And what will happen you know <coughs> with us and the way we look and from my firm's standpoint, number 1, we will do our best to point the business owner in the right direction. If the business owner does not want to correct things, we probably will not take them on as a client. And the the reason we won't is multifold. Number one, it's going to be a lot harder for us to sell that business. You know, number two, there is a possibility that something may happen post-closing of the transaction because of the sloppy records that that weren't there, and we don't want to be involved in in that type of situation, and we don't want our clients to be involved in that type of situation. Yeah. So they're far better off, in our opinion going ahead and do it right the first time.
0: This episode of the How of Car Washing is sponsored by Diamond Shine. Diamond Shine is the premier car wash chemical manufacturer dedicated to maximizing the profitability and performance of car washes. Efficiently producing clean, dry, and shiny cars nationwide, Diamond Shine helps operators create a top-notch wash experience and satisfied repeat customers. From branding and marketing to to on-site problem-solving, Diamond Shine's team delivers results. Visit diamondshine.com today to learn more from the industry experts. Have you
1: ever declined a client and told them to get things cleaned up and come back in three to five years?
2: Uh, actually, we decline about 75% of the people we talk to. Do you
1: really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. And
2: now, a fair amount of those are deferrals, so hopefully they come back. Yeah, you know, with better records and, and do things. Okay. so but not a, all of them.
1: A, a large majority, you say, you know, if you want us to take you on, then we need to do these things. And yep. Okay. Good, good, good. A um, couple things as far as financing. What, what, what's the financing environment right now for small business? What, what are you seeing out there? And is there certain characteristics that need to exist for banks, obviously, to lend money? What, what, what's, what's going on in that environment?
2: Well, from a macro level, there's a lot of capital that's looking to be placed. And even though we had a slight tick in interest rates, uh, we're near historic lows with it. So there's a lot of capital and it's a low interest rate, so it's a good environment Mm -hmm. as, as far as getting money. The majority of the businesses are sold using SBA guarantee loan financing. So I believe Wells Fargo is probably the largest SBA lender in the country and the largest SBA lender in Colorado so I will use you know Wells Fargo as an example and what an SBA guarantee loan means that Wells Fargo or some other SBA qualified or other bank that's SBA qualified essentially will underwrite the loan and it will go through that process and then assuming all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, Wells Fargo or the SBA lender will wind up getting a guarantee from the federal government, meaning if that loan defaults, generally Wells Fargo or the lender will wind up getting 70% of the amount of the loan reimbursed by the, the federal government. Well, that regulatory environment has become increasingly complex over the years. And this is one of the things I believe the Trump administration has been saying, that we need to reduce regulations. Obviously, the more regulations, the more it costs to the consumer, uh, more time it takes, and it is a somewhat cumbersome process, but it generally works well. And the good thing about an SBA guarantee loan, it means that the business owner can get the majority of the sale price, usually 85 to 90% cash at the time of closing with a 10 to 15% seller carry coming into that that component. We closed a transaction in December that was over $6 million, and it was an SBA guaranteed loan. So a lot of businesses can fall within that. On larger transactions, it's not uncommon. Uh, we, We did a transaction in November, for example, and we sold a business, a manufacturing firm up in Denver, for all cash to a public company. Well, they came to the closing table with cash, and we didn't have to worry about financing. With private equity groups, who we also do a lot of business with, they have their lenders in place, and they will usually have a prime lender, and then they may also have a mezzanine lender. The financial engineering of those transactions get a little more complex. Okay. Okay.
1: And just from a macro view, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, the baby boomers and where they're at and what that's doing to, you know, businesses being available for sale?
2: I yep. uh, a couple thoughts, you know, on that. Uh, the first thing is back in 2006, 2007, and 2008, we were near the top of the M&A market. As a matter of fact, I believe it was May of 2007 that prior to 2015 was the top of the market. So we are talking to a number of these business owners that have businesses and our recommendation was that if they were thinking about selling within the next three years, that this was a strong market and they might consider selling at this point in time. Some of them did, many of them didn't. Okay, then what happened? Well, we had the Great Recession that started in 2008. Well, unfortunately, some of those people we talked to wound up going out of business. So I couldn't sell. Many of the other businesses uh, we stayed in touch with, and they said, you know, we should have taken your advice. We should have sold when the market was strong. Well, the market is strong again, and we're seeing some of those people that we talked to back then are saying, okay, I am now eight years older. I have a strong market, I have a good business that's recovering and probably stronger than it was back then, so now is a good time to sell. And oh, by the way, I don't want that train to leave the station again that's right. and do this for another eight yeah. years before the market comes back. Yeah. So yeah. yes, we, we are seeing a, a number of those businesses from baby boomers being sold.
1: And that brings up a good point that if you look at my situation, I mean, I've got a great business that does very well. I've got people interested in buying it, but I'm not quite ready to sell it. So what do you, what type of advice do you give people? Is there, is there's always a price that you say I, I would be willing to sell at because mm-hmm. if somebody's willing to pay you that, you need to get out and go find something else to go do. But th- that's a very emotional, there's very, it's a very emotional process for the seller as you, you know, I want you kind of talk about, but It's emotional for a seller to sell his business because their identity is wrapped up in it quite a bit. They might not know what they're going to go do next. They might not be ready for retirement, but they were given such a great deal. I'm sure this is much uh, counseling business as is a business broker business because of all the emotions that get put into play, both at the buyer side and the seller side. What what advice do you give the seller in that particular case? And then tell us a little bit about how you... why it's important to have a business broker, I want you to go into that discussion, but then how do you manage the emotions on both sides when it gets to the 11th hour of negotiations and people are now assessing the risk of both selling and buying a business?
2: Well, I guess that's the reason why I have some gray hair around my ears. it is a process. There are a lot of questions, you know, in, involved in that. But the first <clears> thing <throat> that I would say is have a team of advisors, Uh, We're fond of saying that selling a company is a team sport. As the intermediary, you know, we know we can't do all things for all people. Yes, I have a background in law and accounting. I'm not going to be your attorney when it comes time to sell your business. That is a whole different discipline. There's a lot of interface and things going on. So you want a good, experienced transaction attorney. And, oh, by the way, if you don't have one, we have a list of good attorneys. that that we could recommend to you as options you want a good accounting firm Uh, you want the accounting firm not only to essentially format your numbers properly but you're going to have some big partners in this the federal government is going to take a big piece of this and the state government is going to take a piece of that. So you want somebody who knows what they're doing relative to helping you mitigate taxes. And there are some things that you can do from a planning standpoint to mitigate those taxes uh, if you sell your business down the road as opposed to I sold my business, help me save some money. Uh, that's a, a more challenging thing to do. Sure. Then uh, a wealth planner might be appropriate in the the process as well. And one of the big things that we see is how much is enough. You and other people have a standard of living. Your standard of living, no offense, is probably different than Donald Trump's. True. And as it is for for most people, but there are other people whose standard of living is a lot different and lower than, than yours. So what is that right number that is going to enable you to have that standard of living. That's where the wealth planner can come into play. So you know what that number is. Here's my bottom line. If I get more than that number, I'm good and I'm okay in selling the business. If I don't get that number, then I'm probably not okay in selling the business. So maybe I ought to keep it. And that essentially puts some financial discipline into the, the process. Okay. So So that's how you take some emotion out of it. You get that third party who tells you, you know, what the minimum number needs to be. So so that is number one. You also ask the question of why use a business broker, intermediary, or investment banker. You know, those three disciplines all do the same thing. They help people sell businesses. And if we have time and you want, I can get into some of the nuances. But you do want somebody with, experience. So, you know, in my firm's case, I started the firm over 34 years ago. We've completed over a thousand transactions, different sizes, shapes, and colors. So chances are we have experience in helping somebody sell within a particular industry. So experience is one thing, that third-party component is another, but probably one of the biggest things is the time. It takes time to sell a business. The average time to sell most companies is nine to ten months from the day we go on the market, you know, with that, that business. You engage to hire us for our services. Now we probably put in weeks and sometimes months before that in order to accumulate the information we need to value the business and come back to you, evaluate. Evaluate it. You determine you you do want to to go to market, but once we do go to market, you know I have a staff of eight people, including myself, over here, and all we do is sell companies. It is not uncommon for me to be involved in a transaction that generates over a thousand emails and hundreds of hours. Well, if you're running your business, do you have time? put in that kind of effort mm-hmm. with it. Another thing that we see most business owners are concerned about is confidentiality. You know, we have a process to try to maintain confidentiality on the sale of a business. You know, and that includes identifying a business by a number, not a name, camouflaging the description of the business so that somebody doesn't know what business you know it is getting confidentiality agreements signed, uh, being reasonably certain that the potential buyer has the financial horsepower to get a transaction completed, you know, with it. So there's a screening process and whatever. But if you're doing all this yourself, probably somebody in your office is going to be intuitive enough to figure out, hey, David is selling his business. So it's that confidentiality piece that comes into play. And oh, by the way, if you're selling the business, one of the worst things that can happen is your business starts declining because you've been spending all this time trying to sell the business and not manage the company. Most business owners are time challenged to stay on top of managing their company and having somewhat of a personal life, let alone the big component of trying to sell it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Plus the fact they don't know what they're doing when it comes right down to it. So knowing whether to get a confidentiality agreement, you know, how to negotiate those terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many things. It's such a big decision. Um, Many small business owners count on the sale of their business for their retirement. Mm -hmm. So what emotional component, besides what you talked about, come up with a number, that you'd be comfortable with, which will give you X amount, which will allow you to retire above or below or at the same level of your lifestyle. But does that add a level of stress to the process when they're looking at this as kind of the retirement?
2: Well, I, I think, again, going back to that financial discipline is, helps an awful lot. So I recall many years ago when I first got into this business, I had a client that had a nice business, and we valued the, the business and got a decent offer, you know, on the business. My client came back and said, okay, I want to counter this, and he came back with a counter price substantially higher than what we were asking for the business first time. And I said, well, time out, let's talk about this. Where'd this come from? Well, you know, I need this to pay off my Cadillac and I wanna pay off the mortgage my house and I wanna buy a new house down in Florida. And when you total all these things up and factor in taxes, this is what I need. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what you need is different than what your business, you know, it's is worth. Is worth. <clears throat> and understanding that on the front end you know, goes a, a long way. You know, another factor that comes into play is the, the cost of selling the the business. Uh, I think I'm a reasonably nice guy, but I don't do this for free. True, yeah. You know, with it, you have taxes we talked about. You're going to have attorney's fees. You're going to have to have accounting fees uh, associated with this. So all these things needed to be factored in determining what is the probable net you're going to have from the transaction. Uh, My industry, like most service businesses, you know, there needs to be a value added. And generally, fees vary depending upon the the size of the business. But most of the time, they're below 12% and and less. The larger the business, the lower the overall fee. fee is going to ultimately be. You know, I've seen some studies that if and intermediaries involved, the business owner can generally expect a 20% premium over selling it them, themselves. Okay. Uh, that's not true in all cases, I'm sure, but you know, from the, the standpoint, the time, the expertise, the value added, uh, it all comes into play.
1: Okay. Okay. And like a real estate broker, who do you represent in the transaction?
2: I... And our industry in Colorado is regulated by the Real Estate Commission okay. in many cases. On the security side, we have FINRA that, that is in, involved. And, and our firm, and this probably goes back to when I practiced law, I was an advocate for my, my client. So we typically represent sellers. So I am an advocate. I have a fiduciary relationship with the seller to get the best deal done. Now I have an obligation of fair duty and disclosure you know, to a buyer as well. So it's not like, you know, here's financial statements and cooking the books. You can't do stuff like that and you shouldn't do stuff like that. <laughs> and I won't do you know, stuff like that. But you, know, you can also have a buyer's agent where you represent a buyer much like the the real estate industry and a a lot of people in our industry are transaction brokers within my firm we have elected to be you know sellers agents okay so
1: if i was going to buy one of the businesses you're listing who would you recommend that i i I should put the accountant on my team i probably should have an attorney Mm -hmm. and and make that attorney my advocate
2: that that will be the case and usually what we see happening in a transaction By the time you vet the business, David, I mean, you're gonna look at this because it's your dollar. Whether you're gonna turn it upside down and shake it and make sure that things are in order. And you're gonna have your accountant do the same thing. You're gonna have your attorney who's representing you and looking out for your best interests, doing that from a legal standpoint. And more likely than not, you're also gonna have a lender. And that lender's gonna do it. So by the time four of you get done with this you're going to understand the the business and pretty much know you know where any skeletons are hidden in the closet
1: okay okay but although you're an advocate for the seller you're an advocate for getting the deal done Mm -hmm. so you want to make sure both parties are taken care of
2: well i I want to be fair yeah into i and my firm do not want anything to do with a transaction that is fraudulent and not appropriate
1: sure So if somebody was outside of our area and they were looking for a business broker, how would you recommend them? What what criteria would you use to select a business broker?
2: Uh, I I think a couple things that I would look at is, first of all, do they have experience? Uh, You know, there could be great guys out there, but if they've never done a deal, it would be challenging, I think, for them to do a good job in representing you. Uh, Are they connected you know, within the, the business community, assuming you're looking to buy a business here or in Denver, uh, we represent a client in California. Why? Because we've sold two other businesses for that client before he moved. We have another transaction in Wisconsin. So there there is some geography, but the majority of the companies we represent are located uh, along the, the Front Range and in Colorado. I think you want a firm with integrity, so you want to check references, you know, relating to the the person that you're going to hire.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, good, good. Any designations you'd recommend looking for? Or?
2: You know, I, th- I think the experience and the integrity comes to play. Yes, I have a lot of designations behind my name. I recommend that my people get educated in doing what they, they do, it just enables us to do our job better. Okay. But I also say this, uh, when I talk to people, hypothetically, you know, you're you looking to sell your company, uh, not only do you need to be comfortable with me, but you're gonna have other professionals, you're gonna have an attorney and a, an accountant. How do you hire those professionals? I think you interview them, but the main thing is, are you comfortable and do you trust that advisor? Will you tell that advisor something and disclose all you should relating to it? And when you get advice back, are you going to trust the integrity of that advice? If you can trust and communicate effectively with that advisor and they have the requisite experience, uh, I, I think you're in, in pretty good shape.
1: Pretty good shape. Okay, good, good. So I'm to kind of wrap up here, I'm going to sell my business in five years. So I came in to visit you, and what are you going to tell me to do?
2: I'm going to tell you to run your business. Okay. You know, like a business. Have a plan. Make sure you know what your number is. But I will tell you some attributes that, depending on the business, are important. You know, we talked about financial statements. So first of all, going back to what I said before, good numbers sell businesses, for more money so make sure you have good financial statements timely and accurate prepared by that third party be a CPA probably uh, with compiled reviewed or audited statements depending upon the complexity and the the size of your business another thing that buyers look at is second-level management if I'm buying your business what happens when all that tribal knowledge walks out the door and you're laying on the beach, you know, someplace. Uh, I am more comfortable if you have a good number two, number three, and number four person, okay. you know, within the company. So having second level management is important. Another thing that we we see is important is lack of customer concentration. Well, you don't have to worry about that in the car wash business because okay. you have thousands of customers right. driving by and using your services. Uh, You might have a manufacturing business, however, that has three customers. That becomes really challenging from a sales standpoint because if any one of those customers, assuming it was divided up approximately equally, if any one of those customers were to leave and you were to lose over 30% of your business, that would be a challenge. So not having customer concentration. You okay. know, is, is another big factor.
1: Okay. Okay. So those would be the things you tell me to go work on.
2: Yep. Good and, good. and we have a list of some others that come into play, but those are the, the big ones Okay. Great. that we typically see.
1: Good, good. Anything else for our audience? Tell me how you got into, I mean, do you like being a small business owner yourself?
2: Well, my grandfather had his own business. Okay. My mom and dad had their own business. Uh, I thought it was in my genes yeah. to do that. I worked for the large law firm, as you pointed out earlier. Uh, that was not the right environment for me. Um, I lived in Chicago at the time. I'm, I'm glad I live in Colorado Springs instead of Chicago now. Yeah, there, yeah. there are a lot of different things going on. So, you, you know, you have some freedom. You can control your own destiny. There are various studies and statistics relative to the amount of wealth generated by owning a company of various sizes, uh, you know, so there, there's a lot of good things yeah, about yeah. owning owning your business. Do you, but, you
1: ever get excited about learning about the businesses that you sell and uh, for people?
2: Well, one of the neat things about my business is I don't worry about a clock. I mean, the time flies sure uh, because I enjoy what I do. I have a great team of people that I work with many of them have been with me for a long time. my office manager Lynn Lage, has been here about 27 years. Uh, Ron Brash my my top deal maker has been with me going on 19 years good. you know or so so if you have good people that really helps what goes on but it's interesting every business is different. I am constantly amazed at how people make money. Yeah. And sometimes I give myself a dumb slap and say, why didn't I think of that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. Sometimes it's amazing how people can make mm-hmm. money. Lots yep. of different ways you never think.
2: So, of. you know, we're, we're fortunate to live in this country in an environment where people can be a capitalist.
1: Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Good, good. Well, Ron, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. If somebody wants to find out more information about FBB Group, where would you recommend that they go?
2: Well, they could certainly, you know, Google us, go to our website, www.fbb.com. Pick up the phone, you know. Okay. But the internet is probably the best way to get the most information. We have a number of articles about acquiring a business there. We have a partial directory of the companies we represent. There some companies we don't put on there because of confidentiality, yeah, okay, you know reasons, okay, you know as okay. well, and articles about how to buy and sell a company,
1: and then obviously sign up for your newsletter. I've, I've enjoyed your newsletter, and I do look at it every every month when it comes out. I do peruse it because there's some really interesting ideas and articles that you put in there. But worst case, but sign up. This is sign up for your newsletter yep. uh, because if you're a business owner, you're either gonna, you know, like you said, you're gonna sell it vertically or you're gonna sell it horizontally, and if you're, if, you're, if you're ever going to sell it, then, yeah. um, you know, make sure that you start thinking about this now. So. Yeah.
2: And, you know, it is sometimes disappointing to us when we see a good business that had a lot of value. And because they didn't exit properly, that value disappears. And the, the most unfortunate thing, I think, is that some employees wind up losing a job instead yeah. of you know, continuing on or transferring wealth to the next generation.
1: Right, but right. Yeah, good that's point. That's the real world. Yeah, good point, good point. So, okay. Well, Ron, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The How of Car Washing, And thanks to our show sponsor, Diamond Shine. Please visit us at thehowofcarwashing.com.